Welcome to the podcast for Icon Church. We're in a series on the Gospel of John titled Witness to the Light, and following the sermon, you'll hear the weekly Q&A. We are continuing in our John series. Uh, we did uh, four weeks in Advent, and we jumped ahead to John chapter 20 last week, where John gives us the purpose statement, kind of thesis for the book. And now we're jumping back to John 1 uh, and picking up where we left off in Advent. And Sometimes when I read the Bible, I have this predisposition uh, to come at it as a kind of pre-modern document that is so disconnected from uh, my life. And when I know that some of these books, namely John that we're studying, was written by uh, a Jewish fisherman's son, basically, I, I, I will admit that I can sometimes assume a level of kind of primitiveness to the scriptures and a lack of complexity that is absolutely not the case, right? And, and this week's passage and next week's passage kind of prove that point, right? So we're coming on the heels of the prologue to John's gospel, which is John 1, 1 through 18, which as we talked about during Advent, is this huge, big Christology, big vision of who Jesus is. Jesus is the creator. He is the logos, the word, this, this primary animating principle of the universe as the Stoic philosophers described it. And, and this kind of big idea about who God is. And then the very next sentence out of John's uh, written mouth, if that's a thing, we just invented a thing, uh, is in verse 19 where it says, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Right? And so I take a step back from that and say, look at this, John the gospel writer, John the evangelist paints this huge picture of who Jesus is, that he is the creator and the sustainer and the one and the word and the light and the life, and then turns and goes, so who are you again? Right, I remember uh, years ago, I was part of a cohort of pastors, and, and the, the, the kind of presupposition of this cohort, uh, or the entrance into it, was something that made me feel really good. It was large church pastors under 40, and I fit the bill. I was 31, 32 years old. Our church was several thousand people. This was back in Phoenix. And, uh, and so my uh, participation in this group kind of fed all of the ego stuff that I now never deal with, but then dealt with all the time. And so I was very proud to be in this group. And there was a lot of like, we'd show up and it'd be, you know, hey, where's your church at? And how, how many thousands did you add this year? And those kinds of things. And I remember the very last meeting of this this group, which I loved and was super helpful to me in many ways, the very last meeting we had dinner um, at, at the leader's house. And he had a special guest uh, that he didn't tell us who it was going to be, but the special guest walked in. And it was a, a guy who uh, runs a little church in Southern California named Rick Warren. If you don't know who Rick Warren is, he, uh, he uh, started Saddleback Church in Southern California. It's one of the largest churches, most influential churches in all of America, and he's a, he's a big deal. He's trying to eradicate AIDS in the world. That's the kind of level of thinking. I'm trying to like not leave my zipper down, right? Like this is, this is who Rick Warren is. And so what was amazing about this moment is, I, you know, he's incredibly wise and smart and learned a ton from is this amazing kind of opportunity. But mostly what I noticed was how little each of us talked about our churches when we were in his presence, 
right? We went around the room to uh, introduce ourselves and what would normally have been kind of a proud moment to go, well, I lead this church in Phoenix. It's a few thousand people. We've got a hundred employees and a budget like this, and we're doing this and that in the city and all of this. In the presence of Rick Warren, when it came to me, I felt like going like, well, I just, I just lead this little church. It's fine. Let's move on, right? Like in light of you, it totally and fundamentally changes how I think about myself and what I'm doing, right? So John paints this similar picture, not to equate Rick Warren with Jesus, but, you know. Uh, and so John goes, Jesus, the creator, the standard, the logos, the, the light, the life, all of this, and then turns and says, so who are you exactly? John Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, in the very, very beginning, the first paragraph of this 1,500-page theological tome, says this. He says, nearly all the wisdom which we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. But while joined by many bonds, which one precedes and brings forth the other is not easy to discern. In other words, we cannot know ourselves without knowing God, but we cannot know God without knowing ourselves. And, and which comes first? It's the theological chicken and egg. And this is a question that John here, John the Baptist, helps us to answer. He answers the question of the Jews, who are you, with four I am nots and two I am's, right? He answers the question with that kind of paradigm in mind, four I am nots and two I am's. And we're just going to ignore the screaming children. <laughs> it's fine. It's totally fine. My wife's in there. She'll handle it. Okay. So let's jump in. Verse 19. Again, this is the testimony of John the Baptist when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, what's interesting about that answer is the Jews didn't say up to that point anything about the Christ. They just said, hey, who are you? He's got hundreds and hundreds of people coming out to be baptized by him. He's gaining in popularity and prominence in the area. People are hearing about him and they come out and just go, who are you, man? Like, how did, how did this all happen? And it says three times, right? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, which is literary kind of turn of phrase to go. He was really clear by saying, I am not the Christ, right? He knew who he was not, and he knew for sure he was not the Christ, this long-awaited, long-prophesied-about Messiah, the Savior of the Jews. He said really clearly, that's not who I am, right? Now, what's interesting is that John the Baptist was having a bit of a moment here, right? Like his popularity was peaking. He had this word-of-mouth campaign going on where he had the opportunity to step into some real power and influence. I mean, the Jews back in Jerusalem thought he was a big enough deal to send kind of emissaries out to go, hey, who are you, man? Let's figure out who you are because, hey, there may be some opportunities for you. There may be a platform for you. There may be some real position and power. We may be able to leverage this moment of popularity for something even more, right? And John goes, that's not who I am. I'm not that guy. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Savior, right? Do you guys know uh, the Peter Principle? The Peter principle is a business principle that says that people get promoted to their level of incompetence, right? 
So the idea is that if you're good at one thing, you'll get promoted, and if you're good at that thing, you'll get promoted, and you basically eventually get promoted until you're bad at it. Like whatever you've been promoted to do, you've actually exceeded your ability, because whatever you're good at, they'll say, well, you could probably do the next thing. So classic example is if you're a really good salesperson, oftentimes businesses promote their salespeople to be sales managers, but it turns out that often the best salespeople are terrible sales managers. Amen? Yeah, if your boss is in the room, you don't have to say amen. But see, the Peter Principle takes two to tango, right? Like it takes a boss to promote a person to their level of incompetence, but it also takes a person to say yes to the promotion that they probably know they don't deserve or cannot do. This is the moment that John the Baptist faced that the Jews were coming to him and ready and willing and hopeful. I mean, they've waited generations to find the Messiah. They want John the Baptist to go, yeah, it's me. I'm here. I'm the guy. I'm going to save you from the Romans, right? I'm going I'm to free you from your newest captivity. But John knew who he wasn't, and so he was able to say no. Now, this is one of the most challenging things I think we all face when it comes to answering the question, who are you? I know I face that all the time. Most of us can admit that we're not the Messiah, for instance, but I wonder how many of us struggle to admit that we can't save, that we can't rescue, that we can't be the solution or the solve in whatever the situation is that we deal with. So I I deal with this on almost a daily basis. Uh, Each and every night, just about, one of my children comes downstairs after being put to bed and uh, in in full disobedience uh, claims to be scared of something. Now, I know that sounds harsh, but I know these children and I know that they're lying. And, and I know that they are not scared of anything because they are just, they're just adding uh, things that, that happen in our world. So the most recent, my daughter Penny, my third, who is great, generally, um, comes down and she says, Daddy, I'm scared. And I said, what are you scared of? She goes, floods and bad guys. I'm like, come on, this is a, a full-on lie right now. Like, I don't buy any of that, right? So, so I walk her back up to her bed, and I put her in her bed. And, and when the excuses about fear are more legit, like we've shown them a movie, and, you know, Voldemort looks a little weird, and so they're you know, scared of the bad guys or whatever, I, I get it. And here's my temptation in, the, in that moment. My temptation is to be the solve. Right, like I, I, tell, uh, I ask my kids all the time, how does it feel to have the strongest daddy in the world? Is that cool? Is that like, are you into that, right? Which is a theory I hope they never test, right? Because wouldn't, it wouldn't play out that way, right? So, but as far as they know, that's their thing. And so uh, uh, my temptation in those moments is to go, hey, Penny, come on, you don't have to be afraid of bad guys. You've got the strongest daddy in the world. I would just karate chop them in half and they'd be dead, right? Like you'd be fine, right? But, and that's my temptation, and it's, it's, I, I do it every other time, right? But like when I, most of the time, when I've got my head on straight, my theology straight, I say to them, who is stronger than every bad guy? Jesus. Who loves you the most in the whole world? Jesus. 
right? So Jesus will protect you. Like Jesus is the strongest being in the whole world and he loves you more than any other being in the whole world. So let's pray that we trust Jesus to protect us in this situation. Now, I know that's just a small, little, funny kind of illustration, but I think the principle holds for a lot of different aspects of our lives where we would say, sure, I'm not the savior. I'm not the Messiah. And yet we try to save and rescue everyone and everything around us. We consistently overestimate our ability to solve the problems. We overestimate and overpromise our ability to even be the ones to find the solution. That the best we can offer is to wrestle together to seek a solution, or better yet, to point beyond ourselves to a better solution. You see, in that moment where I tried to be the savior for Penny, I tried to steal God's glory and honor And honestly, what happens when it does fall to me and I fail? I've propped myself up as a false savior, and in the end, I will fail her. So John, knowing full well that he is not the Messiah, is willing to resist that temptation to be more than what he is, continues to point beyond himself and says, no, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, verse 20, what then? Are you Elijah? Right? And John says, no. I'm not Elijah. Now, here's what's interesting about this. John says he's not Elijah, but is he? Because the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all say he is Elijah. In fact, Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 11 calls John the Baptist Elijah. So the Jews come to John the Baptist and go, hey, are you the Christ? No, are you, the, are you Elijah? And this was a prophecy that one like Elijah would come and kind of predate the Messiah. And so they go, well, are you, are you that guy? Are you Elijah? And he says, no. So why, when all of the other gospels describe John the Baptist as Elijah, in fact, Jesus calls him Elijah, why is John saying he's not Elijah? I have no idea because the text doesn't say it. But if I'm really careful, I could wager a guess, and I think it's one of two things. One, that John doesn't know. That he was given a purpose, he was given a mission, but no one ever told him, oh, by the way, you are Elijah. Like, how does one even learn that about oneself? So I I wonder if John even knew he was Elijah. Because he clearly was. Jesus told us that he was. But I think what's more likely, second, is that John doesn't care that John doesn't care that he's Elijah, that John was given a mission, a thing to do, a purpose for his life, and he didn't need a title to go along with it. He just knew that he was told what to do. We'll see it in a moment. He was told what to do. He knew what his life's purpose was, and he didn't need to be Elijah to be Elijah. Right? There's a difference there. Like some of us need a title in order to be and do what God has asked us to be and do. I know I I had a job once where I felt like I was being asked to be and do somebody else's job, my boss's job. And I, and I remember saying out loud, saying, listen, I, I'm not going to do all of this and be all of this without the title that he has. Why should I do his job? And literally, as the words are coming out of my mouth, I hear their foolishness and their arrogance. That why should I not be and do what God has called me to be and do? Why would I need a title in order to legitimize that activity? See, I think possibly John is denying being Elijah because he knows it will distract from his mission. 
that he'll have to be Elijah rather than just living out his calling and, 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 and preaching and baptizing, doing what he is supposed to do. That there's all kinds of trappings around that kind of identity that John goes, listen, that's not why I'm here. That's not why I'm doing this. I don't need to be Elijah in order to be Elijah. One of my favorite books is a book called Good to Great. I read it once a year. It's really, I think, a great book about leadership. And one of the things it talks about is the, the greatest CEOs of these great companies, they call level five leaders. And these level five leaders are not generally people you've ever heard of. They just do the job at a really high level and they're not kind of celebrity CEOs. They don't need to be the CEO in order to be the CEO. And I wonder if actually John the Baptist was the first level five leader, that he just did it. And he did it well, and he didn't need the identity, he didn't need the title, he didn't need the distractions. And they have a third question. It says, I asked him, who are you? Are you Elijah? He says, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And here's where we begin to really see the heart of the Jews, and I think by extension, our hearts revealed in this moment. Because they're asking, are you the prophet, when nobody really knew who the prophet was supposed to be. This is a, a reference in Deuteronomy 18 where Moses prophesies about a prophet who's going to come and lead the people. And it's probably about Jesus actually, but they're literally grasping at straws here, trying to kind of identify who John is, put him in a box, put him in some category. Like he can't just be a guy doing God's mission. He has to be special. He has to have an identity. He has to have a brand, a platform, a social media presence. He has to be an influencer, a thought leader. I mean, somebody has already purchased J the B dot Baptist, right? Like that's, that's already happened when this is happening here, like just to capitalize on this moment. They can't just let him be a guy. So he goes, no, I'm not the prophet. I'm just, I'm just doing my thing. He just wants to be an obedient disciple of Jesus. And, and for me, I, I read this and I ask myself, can I? Can I just be a guy? Can I just be a guy loving Jesus, doing what I know I'm supposed to be doing without any of the outside stuff, without any of the temptation of platform and identity and reach and multiplication and all of the things that we talk about and obsess about and worry about as if they were the thing, when in fact, most often they simply distract from the thing. John has the ability to resist all of this by saying, I am not the Christ, I am not Elijah, I am not the prophet, whatever that is. Stop trying to give me a name and an identity. Let me just do what God's called me to do. So he says, I'll tell you what I am. Because they said, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John says this, the first of his two I ams. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He says, one, I am a voice. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Now, what I want us to hear is, in verse 23, it says, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And I, and I just want to peel back the Greek for you here for just a moment, because in the Greek, there is no definite article. The word the doesn't exist in the Greek. So he's not saying, this is really important to, to hear what John's kind of whole thing is. He goes, I'm not the voice. As in, oh great, you're the voice. And they go back to Jerusalem and go, he's the voice, right? Like capital T, capital V, the voice. He just goes, listen, I'm a voice. 
I'm a voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the path for the Lord. I'm just a guy obeying Jesus, and I know that one of the things that he has called me to do is to be a voice calling people to repentance. He is not a character for the story. He is just a guy doing what he was called to do. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 isn't his identity. It's just like his life verse. It's just the verse that, that best clarifies the calling that God has put on his life. His job is to prepare the way for the Lord by preaching repentance, and he threw his entire self into that endeavor. If you remember, a couple weeks ago, I showed, showed you some pictures of John the Baptist. If you can remember those pictures, he, he is described as wearing a leather belt and a burlap sack and eating locusts and honey, and he lives in the wilderness. Like He is literally turned away from everything that might distract him from his mission. He has called the people around him to repent from everything that isn't Jesus, which apparently included style and hygiene. He has oriented his entire life around this. He says, I am a voice, one calling in the wilderness, making a way, preparing the path for the Lord. And this message of repentance has a response, and that's the second thing he says. Verse 24 says, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you were neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet. And John answered them, I baptize. I baptize with water. He says, I am the baptizer. I am the voice. I am a voice for the Lord. And I am his hands. His entire life has been oriented around this calling and nothing could distract from it even and maybe especially not the trappings of his mission's effectiveness. He wasn't distracted by questions about multiplying his reach or raising his platform. He was called to be a voice, not the voice. He was called to make straight the path, not be Elijah. He was a prophet, but he wasn't the prophet. He baptized, but he wasn't the Baptist. We gave him that name. There's no way, I've never met the guy, but I promise you, he would never have called himself John the Baptist. He just did what God asked him to do, and he wasn't worried about any of the rest of it. He had a really clear sense of who he was and what God had asked him to do. Now, John makes a, a great example for us to follow and cuts so counterculturally against the world that we live in where we have to be somebody and create a presence and create an identity and create a brand in order to be promoted, in order to get the next thing, in order to have the influence that we want to have. And we rationalize it all by going, yeah, but if I was more powerful, then I could be more powerful for Jesus. And we have all of these ways we talk ourselves into this. And John goes against all of them, contradicts all of it, and just simply says, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and whatever happens, happens. Period. But in order to understand, in order to, to, to follow John's example, we have to understand why he was the way that he was, what moved him, what motivated him, how did he become this man? Now, for those of you who are good at counting, you might have noticed that I did three I am nots and I promised four. And I know you've been anxiously waiting and I screwed up your notes because you're going to do the I'm nots first, now the I am's, but bear with me. Because he answers them saying, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John 
was baptizing. John says, I'm not even worthy of being a servant of the one who is to come, the one for whom I am straightening paths. This is the key to John's unparalleled sense of self. He sees himself in light of Jesus, not in light of those around him. Which brings us back to Calvin and this question of self-knowledge and God-knowledge. How can we know God and self? How can John the Baptist be kind of a paradigm for us, an example for us, how we can grow in this level of self-knowledge that John clearly had? I think he answers that for us in the rest of this passage, verses 29 through 34. So let's read that together. It says, the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I want to pause right there for a second because here, here's the moment where the rubber hits the road for John. It's one thing to say, hey, I'm not the Christ, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not the prophet, I'm not Elijah, I'm not these things, I'm just a guy doing a thing. But see, then here comes Jesus and in Jesus, embodied in who Jesus is, is the possibility of John's loss. Right? He's got all these crowds. It's easy to be generous when you're winning. right? Like It's easy to be kind and, and when, you're, when you're on the winning side and you've got the crowds and all the momentum. But then when Jesus comes and you know, well, here comes the moment where I diminish and he gets bigger, where all of the crowds, if I'm doing my job right, are about to go with him. Here's where the rubber hits the road. He can see Jesus in, coming in the distance and he has a moment. Is he going to grasp for power and influence that he knows is not his or will he in this moment give it up as he says he would do? And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it, reminded, it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. He did it. He actually walked out his own convictions. He actually faced down the moment that maybe we are all afraid of to actually walk out what we say we believe. He has, for some amount of time, months probably at this point, maybe years, been proclaiming who he was, baptizing in the name of Jesus, calling people not to himself, but from himself to God, to the Savior who was to come. And the moment of truth comes and he actually delivers. John has seen God in Jesus. And reflected in Jesus, he has seen himself. We are tempted to look around us and see ourselves in light of our peers or those maybe directly above us. We are tempted to grasp for what they have and what they are because it seems attainable and maybe we seem deserving. See, it's the difference between us looking at our immediate boss and probably most of us would look at our immediate boss and go, I could do what they do. Right now, we're not going to go around the room, but you can just... I just know I'm right. Y'all think you can do your boss's job, and, and honestly, you probably think you can do it better than them, and honestly, you maybe could. 
But I think very few of us, maybe we work at Amazon and we look at our immediate boss and go, yeah, I could probably do their job, but we perhaps look at Jeff Bezos and go, yeah, maybe not. Or we work at, or if you do, like we got some serious repenting to do. Uh, uh, or, or you work at Microsoft and you look at Bill Gates and you go, okay, I, I couldn't do that, so I'm not gonna reach for that, I'm not gonna grasp for that, but yeah, I could do my boss's job for sure. So what's interesting that happens with us is when we look here or maybe like one degree above ourselves, we, so it, we, we compare ourselves to that which we think we can do, and that informs what we think about ourselves. But if we would look up a little higher to maybe our CEO or, or God forbid, God, and, and see ourselves in light of who they are, it changes the way we think about ourselves. So here's an example. Um, I used to live in Arizona, did so for a long time, and we would play basketball at LA Fitness all the time. And, uh, and, and basketball at LA Fitness is great. It's super competitive, and everybody's talking trash, and everybody's having a good time, and, and we're working hard and trying to be really good and think we're really good because we're just comparing ourselves to the other has-beens who've never actually been good at basketball. And so we're we're all kind of in it together and we're pretty, you know, when you win, you feel pretty good about yourself. And I just remember the day that Mike Bibby walked into the gym. And some of you may know who Mike Bibby is. Some of you may not. Mike Bibby had a long career in the NBA as a point guard, but he's from Phoenix, right? And so he would play in LA Fitness. I don't know why. Just, I, I don't, that's a whole other sermon. Uh, but, but he would come into the gym and it changed the whole gym dynamic. All of a sudden, it was way less competitive. There was way less trash talking. It was way more fun because we all realized, oh, we're not good. <laughs> like, that's, that's, that's not what this is. This is little children playing with a ball. Like, we're like kittens playing with a ball. When Mike Bibby comes in the room and you, and you go, oh, well, that's like a basketball player. Right? I don't know what we are, but that's what a basketball player is. And it changes the whole dynamic of the thing. And you stop pretending you're good you stop pretending this matters. You stop pretending anything about yourself because Bibby's in the room, and if you were trying to be competitive, you would look like a fool. And, and I think this is a little bit of what happens in our lives. When we spend all of our lives looking horizontally at each other, we think to ourselves, this matters, I'm pretty good, I'm better than them. I'm fighting with them. I could defeat them. I could move up. I, this, this matters and I'm important and this is a big deal and I'm doing some things here. And then Jesus walks up to your little baptism party and you go, well, that's, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And all of a sudden, what we're doing here seems kind of silly, seems kind of, kind of small, seems kind of basic in light of who God is and what God's done. And so in this moment where John could have felt very self-important, very what, what he was doing was very important and meaningful, all of a sudden, Jesus comes, up, comes in and he goes, listen, I know who I am. I know that I'm a voice. I know that I am a baptizer, that this is what God has called me to do. And it matters, and I matter, but it doesn't matter like that. It's not important like that. I have a role to play, but it's not that role. And so when John can see himself in light of Jesus, he can then know himself more accurately. He can know himself more fully because in that moment, all the competition is stripped away. All the comparison is stripped away. All the pretense of meaning is stripped away when he can see himself in light of Jesus. 
See, Calvin's question isn't answerable in the sense that we would say we have to know ourselves first or know God first because that's not how God intended for it to work. We don't figure ourselves out first and then move to God as postmodern culture might tell us to do or even the other way around, understand God and then we can understand ourselves as perhaps modern culture might have taught. Neither is possible. Our relationship to God is meant to be a mirror where we look at God and see ourselves in light of him and are moved to repentance. And then look at ourselves and all that God has blessed us with and how he's cared for us and we're moved to belief in the goodness of the gospel. It's Mark 1 played out over and over. Repent and believe, repent and believe, repent and believe. We look toward God and then to ourselves. We see us in our sin in light of God's glory and we repent and we look up to his gracious offer of salvation and we believe the gospel and we do it over and over and over. We can only see ourselves truly when we see him truly, which allows us to then again look at him. We see him at once growing further away and closer still, F- further away in the sense that we see more and more and more of his majesty. Our, 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 our temptation is to make us and God really close, but the longer we look at God, the further away he is in terms of his holiness and grandeur and omniscience and power. He is more and or less and less like us, more and more dislike us, unlike us. The more we look at him, the more we realize the gap. And yet, we realize how close he is to us in relationship, in love, in care for us. And that kind of counterintuitive idea is the good news of the gospel. We can only know our humanness when we see his divinity. We can only know our imminence in light of his transcendence, our limits over against his limitlessness, our need when we see his provision, our gifts after knowing he is the giver, our mission when we see his mission, our jobs and our vocation when we know he is the creator. We can know our purpose when we know he is the purpose maker. We know our power when we see his generosity. We we can know and admit our sin only when we understand his forgiveness. We can only know the holiness that he holds out to us when we understand his sacrifice. We spend all our time looking at ourselves and looking at others to figure out who we are. But if we look at Jesus, we can actually know ourselves. And in the process, we discover more and more, the more and more we look at him, the less and less we need to and really want to look at ourselves. So that question of who are you, which seems so core to our being and so important to our lives, actually becomes less and less and less important the longer we look at him. Here we go. Question one. Do you see parallels between John saying he's not Elijah or the voice with Jesus saying, uh, Jesus in in Philippians being described as not considering equality with God something uh, to be grasped? In other words, is John's humility 
the best signpost he gave us toward Jesus? I think it's a great question. Uh, and yes, right. So that, that passage in Philippians is one of my favorite. It says that Jesus didn't uh, consider equality with God something to be grasped. And we use that, that word grasped and we think about reaching for something where when, when we talk about Jesus in that passage, it's, it's more an uh, unwillingness to relinquish something, right? Like Jesus wasn't uh, unwilling to, uh, to step away from heaven and all of the trappings of his full divinity in order to be with us, right? So that humility and self-sacrifice for a greater purpose was, uh, was kind of one of the primary indicators, identifiers of Jesus, right? Like that was what he modeled for us. And so in John, yeah, we see that kind of humility and self-sacrifice um, that I think comes naturally with true self-knowledge, right? Like those things work together. Like you're not going to be tempted to grasp, grasp for something that you're not, the truer sense of yourself that you have. And so we talked about this last week. I, I read a quote to you from Jordan Peterson about um, death being a paradigm in Christianity, that all great things come as a result of sacrifice or death, that that is the pathway that Jesus walked and in so doing created for us, that Jesus didn't just overcome death. He actually turned death into a tool for life, which is defeating Satan at so many levels, right? Like that's the ultimate defeat. So that, yeah, absolutely, that is one of the, primary ways that John is a signpost uh, to us for Jesus. Uh, number two, last week we talked about signs and wonders. Would it be fair to say that John was a sign for those who heard him teach that pointed to Jesus? Yes, and again, the same, the same way. Like, Not only was John's life a signpost to Jesus, because Jesus walked in that same sense of humility, um, often saying like, hey, I do what the Father tells me to do, right? Like him knowing even his place in the Trinity and his, uh, his role in, in, and his mission there on earth. So absolutely, that was, uh, that was the paradigm and, and, and still is today. Last, and I think this is practical for us, how did J the B know? Thank you for taking on J the B as his nickname. <laughs> Love that. Uh, how did John the Baptist know? What's the best way to know our role in the work of the kingdom? Well, uh, J the B is a little bit of a, a, a unique example because he was uh, prophesied about uh, by angels uh, before his birth. In fact, it's one of my favorite stories in Luke chapter 1. Uh, an angel, Gabriel, comes to Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, and says, hey, you're, you're going to have a son. You're going to name him John. This is what his life's going to be. And, uh, and Zechariah goes, well, how can I know that this is true? And, and Gabriel looks at him like, because an angel's telling you this, right? Like, and he goes, well, because you're dumb, I'm going to strike you mute. So he can't speak until uh, basically John the Baptist's circumcision day. Just, that's a whole other thing. Uh, but then he names him John, and his, his tongue is loose. But it's, it's such a great story of an angel being like, for real, bro? I'm like, I'm like glowing, okay? Like, believe glowing people. Um, so uh, anyway, John the Baptist had this, like, prophecy about him, which, you know, always helps. Most of us don't have that in our life. Um, so I, I think there's a number of things. I think, one, uh, there's a sense in which, and Andy Crouch, uh, who's one of my favorite writers, wrote an article talking about kind of the three vocations of all humans. One is, the first and foremost, is to image God. That is the vocation we all share. That number one is to bear the image of God actively, proactively, intentionally reflecting who God is. 
second is to create, uh, to kind of help cultivate a world where other people can image God. So where we see injustice, that we would fight for it, where we see opportunities for development and growth, that we would lean into it. So image God, help others image God. And then third uh, is, is find the way in which your unique gifts and skills and background and, and some existential sense of calling kind of intersect to accomplish those two things that most fully reflect the image of God in you and work to create space to reflect the image of God in other people. And I would say that those three things uh, matter in that order of importance. So the most important thing is that you work to image God in your life. The second most important thing is that you give yourself to endeavors that help others image God. And third, however you do it, great. Like that's the least important part of it and usually the one we spend the most time dwelling on. If we spent the most time working on imaging God and helping others image God and the least amount of time working, trying to figure out and the least amount of stress and anxiety and, and tests and enneagrams and all of that to figure out exactly what we're supposed to be doing, if we flip that, I think we'd all be living far more fruitful lives. Thanks for listening. For more information and podcast episodes, head to iconchurch.org.